Now, with Indistractable, the idea was, look, who better to tell you the ins and outs of how these techniques work and how to uh, and, and what the Achilles heels are of these tech uh, of these technologies than someone who understands them intimately. I'm not some academic who doesn't have a social media account. I use this stuff every day and I know how it's built. And so I think I'm a great person to tell you, here's how these products are made. Here's where they are powerful. But here's the thing. You are much, much more powerful than these tech companies. That's Nir Eyal, the author of the new book, Indistractable. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is Bomo Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic and is changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. There's a war going on for your attention. It's being waged by Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and a disparate group of companies and forces that actively try to carve out a little bit or a lot of your day for themselves. The casualty of this ongoing battle is your ability to focus. But good news is it doesn't have to be that way. It's time to fight back and reclaim the valuable real estate that many of us have ceded in the battle over how we invest our time and our attention. You have a choice, and my guest today will show you exactly how to do that. His name is Nirayal, and he's the author of Indistractable, a new book that shows you how to choose what you actually want and miss out on the rest, and he should know. He is also the author of Hooked, the handbook about how to create habit-forming products that has become a cult manual for all of those people who are designing products that buy for your attention. That makes him uniquely positioned to lead the emerging revolution against distraction. In our discussion, Nir shares his tips for getting things done without distraction. This includes his approach to scheduling the things that really matter and how to deal with what is perhaps the biggest time waster of them all, email. He also takes on his critics who question whether the guy who wrote about how to get people hooked on tech products is the right person to free us from them. And then stick around for a very special full moment of the show when I have season one guests, the hosts of Market Snacks, back on the show to talk about what they've been up to since then. I'll give you a sneak preview. They're now part of one of Silicon Valley's most valuable startups. Nirayal, welcome to FOMO Sapiens. Thanks, Patrick. Great to be back on the show. Am I the first person to come back on the show? You are the first person to come back. Listen, you wrote this book, which um, is very hot right now. And so, you know, we had to have you back because it's a great book for FOMO Sapiens. But we always start the show with this same question, which is uh, everybody feels a little FOMO sometimes. So what turns you into a FOMO Sapiens? So what is it these days? Well, you know, I think actually that by design, I think we are built for distraction. So I'm I'm constantly tempted by distraction. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I wrote Indistractable. It was not because I have superhuman uh, self-control and willpower, but quite the opposite. I've always struggled with the fear of missing out on, oh my gosh, I should tr- probably try that uh, dessert that I know is not good for me. I should, you know, w- what am I missing on Netflix? What am I missing on email? What am I missing? I mean, that's constantly uh, my life right there. So <laughs> I am no uh, stranger to to the temptation of missing out and therefore what pulls us towards distraction. It's a classic wounded healer. I don't know if you've heard of this concept. It's young 
Carl Jung came up with the idea that the person who suffers from the problem is the best person to help you find the solution. And in fact, they're often just one step ahead of you on the journey, but they're well positioned to do this. So I, I think uh, you are definitely the wounded healer. Yes. In, uh, in re research is me search. I like that. Okay. <laughs> so what is the big idea here mm -hmm. with this book? The big idea is that in order to do what we say we're going to do, in order to live with personal integrity, we have to learn this new skill set of becoming indistractable. That um, Plato, in fact, asked this, a similar question 2,500 years ago. He called it akrasia, the tendency that we have to do things against our better interest. He asked, why is that? If we know what to do, why don't we just do it, right? Why don't we stay on track and do what we say we're going to do? And um, that's, I, that's, to me, I think, a really fascinating question. Now, I think um, you know, people have come up with all sorts of techniques uh, ever since Plato asked that question to keep them on track to prevent getting distracted. But I think there's this new uh, problem where we have these new media tools that make it in, in, in some ways uh, easier to get distracted if you are looking for a distraction. And so that's really what I wanted to, to answer is how do we deal with distraction in this new digital media age? Uh, how do we become indistractable ourselves? How do we help our kids become indistractable? How do we make the workplace indistractable? All of these things are, are things that I wanted answers to. So one of the things you talk about early on in the book is addiction. And it could be cigarettes, it could be alcohol, but you sort of draw these parallels between our addiction to our devices and these classic cases where there have been treatments that have been developed over time. How does how do you think about the, the parallels between the addictions of cigarettes and alcohol or food or other things that we're used to and these new digital devices in our lives. Yeah. So I think, you know, distraction, I define distraction as anything that pulls you away from what you intend to do. So the best way to understand distraction is to understand the opposite of distraction. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six-letter word, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you are doing with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do with intent. So uh, you can kind of think of, of distraction on a spectrum in a way where the most severe cases of, of distraction are something like an addiction, even though, you know, I think most people are not addicted to their technology. I know a lot of people like to say that. And in fact, I think that's a, a term we need to stop using in this context because it, one, disrespects the people who actually struggle with the pathology of addiction. Addiction is a pathology. And two, it leads to learned helplessness. So these tech critics who say, oh, technology is addicting you. It's hijacking your brain. It's, you know, making your kids do crazy things. That way of thinking, in fact, makes it true. We are giving in to these tech companies when we give up control and say, okay, now, you know, if there's an addiction, there has to be a pusher, a dealer, someone doing it to us. And I think we, we like that type of terminology. This is called motivated reasoning. We want to believe that there's nothing we can do about it. So why even try? But of course, that makes it true. And so for the vast majority of people, we're talking 99, 95% of the population, this is not an addiction. It's, you know, way down on the spectrum. It's a distraction. Now, I cite in the, in the book many times addiction research, helping people uh, with smoking cessation, with, with uh, drug abuse, because 
the idea here is that, look, if these techniques can work for something as powerful as a substance that crosses the blood-brain barrier, then they can certainly work with something like email or Facebook or, you know, social media distraction. So I, I use some of these very same techniques that come out of acceptance and commitment therapy, that come out of the addiction community to, to show that, that these techniques work in even the most extreme cases so that they can certainly work in the cases of distraction. Now that particular approach has not been without some controversy. And I was reading up on your new book. So you've, you've got really interesting coverage out there. You got the New York Times and the, the title of the review of the book is Addicted to Screens. That's really a you problem. And it, it cites the fact that you wrote a book called Hook that shows people how to create habit forming products in the technology space. And you have become a guru in that, in that part of the ecosystem, the tech ecosystem. And now you are writing a book about how to undo that. And so there has been a share of criticism that says, well, is it uh, fair to say that, in fact, it's a you problem and not a problem that people are creating very addictive, you know, in quotes or, or not in quotes, uh, technologies that have people uh, unable to break free? So I guess when you think about what the critics are saying to you, what, what, what is, what is, is there anything valid about what they're saying or do you totally reject it? Well, I did not pick that headline. I would not have picked that headline. Uh, and I do not think that that it is your fault that these technologies are here. Uh, you didn't invent these things. But many times, something that is not your fault is still your responsibility. Because the fact of the matter is they're not going away, right? We're not getting rid of email. We're not getting rid of Slack. We're not getting rid of the, the, these tools. And frankly, distraction is a much older problem than just our technology tools. It goes much deeper than blaming this, this scapegoat of technology. Distraction has been with us for a very, very long time. Now, when it comes to addiction, addiction is a different story. Addiction is a pathology. Typically, addiction has a very high comorbidity rate with obsessive compulsive disorder, with some kind of trauma. Addiction is not so simple of to say, oh, addiction is I like to use it a lot. That's rubbish. We need to stop using that terminology. It is not accurate. It is not true. It's disrespectful to people who actually are suffering from that pathology. And the second thing I would say is that, you know, these attacks are, uh, are just ad hominem attacks. They're attacking me, not my techniques which is okay. That's fine. I get it. It might be strange to see that someone who wrote a book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products is now writing a book about how to, uh, um, how to control your attention and choose your life. And uh, I understand that, but I think it's clear to me when people level those kind of criticisms that they haven't read the book. Now, with Indistractable, the idea was, look, who better to tell you the ins and outs of how these techniques work and how to uh, and, and what the Achilles heels are of these technologies than someone who understands them intimately. I'm not some academic who doesn't have a social media account. I use this stuff every day and I know how it's built. And so I think I'm a great person to tell you, here's how these products are made. Here's where they are powerful. But here's the thing you are much, much more powerful than these tech companies. But I do think it is valid because we, we don't, we don't have all the answers yet. So it's certainly a healthy conversation to have. But, but I would say having, having read Indistractable, I think the simple answer is try it out and see if it works for you. And if it works, then, you know, yeah. there's your answer. Well, that's the nice thing is that nobody's criticizing the techniques. <laughs> Not one person has said, uh, the techniques don't work. The techniques do work. So you actually spend, I would say probably 65% of the book or so, maybe a little bit more, going through with a bunch of strategies. And I want to dig into these because they're interesting. I've actually been 
sort of implementing some of these in my own life with some success. It's a, it's a journey, you know, it's it not, is, it's, it's you're never done. It's like, it's, it's like being brand. creative. You never say, Oh, I'm done being creative. No, you <laughs> never say I'm done being indistractable. It's some, it's an attribute. It's, it's, it's a quality. It's a macro skill that helps you do other things in your life. So that's, that's great. You're doing it the right way. You're adopting, you know, one technique at a time, putting it to use. And when you're ready, adopting the next technique. That's Thank wonderful. you. Well, I'm trying. So I want to start out with you. You talk about the scheduling. So yeah. this idea that you basically want to take your life's calendar and you want to schedule everything down and so that you actually schedule free time, time with the people in your life that are important to you, time for email, all mm. these sorts of things. So talk about that first because I thought that was – it was a little provocative actually. Mm. I think there's a lot there's a lot we can dig into there. So how does it work? The idea here is that you're turning your values into time. Uh, because the whole idea behind becoming indistractable is living with personal integrity. And so the practice comes down to, this is a well-studied technique. It's called making an implementation intention. Hundreds upon hundreds of studies have verified how effective this is. Just a fancy way of saying you plan out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And the idea is that once you have that time box schedule, the next thing that you do, and this is, this is something I haven't seen in any other book. The technique has been around for a while, but what I highly recommend is to do what's called a schedule sync where you're sitting down with the stakeholders in your life, whether it's your significant other at home, whether it's your boss, you're sitting down with them and you're showing them this calendar that you've made on a regular basis. For me and, and with my wife, we do this once a week. And you're synchronizing that schedule to make sure you're on the same page. At work, this is unbelievably effective because so many managers today, you know, they throw over these tasks. They say, okay, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. Go. And they think that they are doing this and they're doing a favor to their employees because they're not micromanaging. They say, okay, here's all the things I need to get done. I need you to get done. Go do it. What they don't realize is that they are, are without giving some kind of guidance on the inputs of time and only requesting the outputs of the, the of the product of, of labor, you're driving people crazy, literally driving people crazy. There's a whole section in the book about these two conditions in the workplace, this comes from the research of Stansfield and Candy, that showed that the confluence of high expectations with low control leads to depression and anxiety disorder in the workplace. It is literally driving people crazy. And so how do you give people greater agency and control? You synchronize their time. You sit down together and you say, okay, here you go, boss. I made my schedule. And here's where everything fits in. Here's all the stuff I could fit in. Now there's these three things I didn't find time for. Help me reprioritize. What should I take off my plate? What should I hold off till next week so that I can do one of these other priorities? That simple practice will change your work life. It's incredibly effective, very simple technique, this schedule syncing process to make sure that we make time for traction in our day to do the things that are really important to us. And how rigid do you have to be? Like, for example, you wrote a book, I wrote a book. A lot of people who are listening are writing memos or doing things like that where you sit down, you've got the three hours scheduled and you sit down and you just, you, you just, it's not your day to write. Yeah. You're just not in the, the right place. Should you give up and go for a walk? Like how should you react to that? Because obviously if you just sit there for three hours, it's going to be frustrating. Yeah. So the best way to demonstrate my philosophy on this is to tell you about my sleep. Uh, so I suffered with insomnia for a very, very long time. Every night I would get up at 3 a.m. and uh, I would start ruminating about how uh, I can't get to sleep. And if I don't sleep soon, my day is going to be wrecked tomorrow. I'm not going to do a good job in that presentation. I'm not going to get any writing done. I, I would keep ruminating about this. And so I did some research and I discovered that the number one cause of insomnia 
Some, some people do have a medical condition. There is a pathology for some folks. But for the vast majority of people, the number one cause of insomnia is worrying about insomnia. And so what did I do? The first thing I did was to make time for traction. I planned my day. So my job was to plan the inputs, not the outputs. That's one of the mantras from the books. Plan, plan the input, not the output. So what did I do? I made sure I'm in bed on time. Okay. I made sure that I have an, an environment conducive to sleep. But most importantly, I am in bed when I say I will be in bed. Because if I'm not in bed, no way I'm going to sleep, right? <laughs> if I'm working, I'm not sleeping. So my job was to plan the input, the input of time spent in bed. Now, well, what happens when I plan the input and I still wake up, right? I'm still three o'clock in the morning. Now I wake up. What do I do? I changed my mindset. And my mindset became that when I wake up at three in the morning, instead of ruminating, I tell myself this simple mantra that the body gets what the body needs. So if I don't sleep that well tonight, I'll sleep better tomorrow. And that's exactly what happened. And when I did that, when I started letting myself relax, uh, I actually saw it as an opportunity sometimes. So I don't have any screens in the bedroom except for my Kindle. That's the one screen I do allow. Typically, I have a boring book on my Kindle that I can read. And so I saw it as an opportunity. Okay, well, if my body's not tired, I can I can read this book. This is my catching up on reading time. And what happened? I started to relax. I stopped ruminating and I would fall back asleep. And so the output would follow. And so to answer your question, this is exactly what happens when we're at our desk and we try and do creative work. You can't summon the creative work to happen right now. Okay, right now I'm going to write a bestseller. Right now I'm going to, you know, write this TED talk. Right now I'm going to create this presentation that's going to win me, you know, millions of dollars of business. You, you can't always summon the, the, the creative gods to anoint you with the best possible work right this minute. But if you are not in that chair, if you haven't allocated that time to do your work, for sure it won't happen. And so your job is to work on the inputs and the outputs will follow. This approach is interesting because I think sometimes we think that it's simply you just got to grind it out, right? It's sort of like, and, I, and I've had this experience when I started working for myself, and I've seen this with other friends of mine who are entrepreneurs. It's sort of like, I just need to stay at the desk until the magic happens. But of course, uh, as you've just highlighted, that's not helpful, right? Because you end up creating a lot of anxiety for yourself. So figuring out a way to get away from this this concept that it's just the willpower that you need. Right. I hate willpower. Yeah, willpower. I hate self-control. I call it won't power. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a fan because willpower is so fickle. It is not something we want to deploy regularly. Much better than than self-control and, um, uh, you know, willpower is using systems, is making sure you don't have to use the willpower when the time comes. So as opposed to saying, I will finish this chapter, I will do this task. Instead, what my calendar says now, it says, I will work on this for one hour. Yeah, That's it. If I work on my book for one hour, just one hour every day, the book will get done. <laughs> it's about consistency over intensity. Intensity, we burn out, right? It's very hard to spend all those hours that it takes to make great work and, you know, compact it into just one day. You can't do that. You burn out eventually. But it's very easy to just spend one hour per day doing it consistently without distraction. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is, is that very few people have a lot of willpower. I mean, it's a, it's the rare person and people do it. Of course, it's like that person training for the marathon and they have the very specific output goals every day, but that's not the vast majority of society. So you right. have to find another way around to make, to make these things applicable to lots of people. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. 
One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. So I want to move on to what is my greatest frustration in life, probably at this point, and I think a lot of people listening probably will agree with me, which is email. Mm. I read in your book that about 50% of emails that are sent are not necessary. And email has become, for a lot of people, a major factor in distraction, in stress. It just never ends. It's like, I think of it, it's sort of like you hear about these exotic torture techniques where it's the people who have water poured on their on their forehead or you think about these people who are condemned to like in greek mythology and like it's like you've got to empty water with a bucket out of the ocean yeah. and i feel like that's email these days and you talk about email uh and how to deal with it so why don't you help us overcome our email problems after we've mastered the internal triggers after we've made time for traction the third step is to hack back the external triggers. So of course, there's the external triggers of the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things on our devices. There are also the external triggers of other people, right? One of the greatest sources of distraction in the, in the modern office is the open floor plan office, full of distraction, right? Somebody tapping you on the shoulder when you're working on a project can be just as distracting as something, you know, some notification on your phone. So uh, I talk about these various environments like how to hack back meetings, how to hack back group chat, and of course, how to hack back email. And so one of the ways that I talk about in the book to hack back email, I'll just give you kind of a, a tip of the iceberg, is this, this, this truth that if you want to receive fewer emails every day, you have to send fewer emails every day. And, and it seems simple, right? But how do you do that? So if you look at where we waste the most time on email, it's not the checking, it's not the replying, it's the rechecking. If you do this technique that I'm gonna to describe to you, you only touch each email two times. The first time you open that email and you have to answer to yourself one important question. The only thing that matters from a time management perspective about that email is when does it need a reply? If it never needs a reply, you just delete it. If it needs a reply right this minute, hair on fire type problem, well, then you have to take care of it. That's about 1% of your emails, right? Very few emails are really, really urgent. People will call you or text you if it's really, really, you know, something terrible has just happened. But for the vast majority of emails, they fall into two categories. Things that need to reply, be replied to today and things that require a response sometime this week. So what we want to do is to simply label each email with one of these two categories. And you can do this in Gmail, you can do this in Outlook. Every, every email service provider has these type of labels. If you don't know how to do it, just Google, you know, how do I label email? So you want to mark it with one of these two labels, either things that need to be replied to today or things that need to be replied to tonight. And so what you're doing per the, the second step of making a time box calendar is that you have time in your calendar every day to check email. So this has a few benefits. One, you know that time is in your schedule. 
And so you'll know you'll get to it at some point. And it, what this also does, it reduces your stress levels of constantly thinking, ooh, I wonder what's in my email. I wonder what's in my email. Back to those internal triggers that we talked about earlier. So your stress level about the curiosity of what's going on, what's going on, the fear of missing out of checking your email box is diminished because I know that time for my email is coming. It's in my schedule. So I don't have to check it throughout my day. I've got an hour and a half, an hour, whatever, how much time you need, you've got time to answer those emails. But I only want you to answer the urgent messages, the ones that require a message today, okay? What that does is reduce your email load from 100 emails a day to about 10 per day that you actually need to answer today. Now, what about all those other messages, right? What about the stuff that can wait a little bit? So in your calendar, I also want you to put in time to take care of of those messages. So for me, I call it Message Monday. I have three and a half hours every Monday where all I do is go through those messages that can wait a week's time. Now, you say, well, aren't I just postponing the inevitable, right? I would have to respond to those emails anyway at some point, right? Well, here's the thing. One, if you reduce the number of messages you send every day, you will reduce the number of emails you get back every day because what most people do is they just answer emails as they get them, like playing this email ping pong game all day long. And, and so they get more messages because they send more messages. Two, and here's the real benefit, is that when we let email marinate for a little bit, when we just let it simmer, what we find is that about half those messages, turns out, don't need a reply. Something gets crushed under the weight of some other priority. People figure out a solution for themselves. And it turns out that many of those emails that you thought you needed to reply to if you just give them a little bit of time, turns out you don't need to reply to them. So it's this incredibly shrinking email inbox when you decide, nope, that message doesn't need a reply right now. Nothing terrible is going to happen if I just wait a little bit. You label it as, as something that can be replied to sometime this week. You make time for it to reply to in one big chunk. And then you'll find that those emails uh, begin to evaporate magically as many of them don't even need a reply. So that's just one technique we can use. So I've actually been trying this one. I heard about this when you had your book launch and you were talking about it with Ariana Huffington because that's how fancy you are these days. <laughs> and I I did this. I was the guy who thought I had to respond to every email, inbox zero, all this stuff. And I'm sure many of us do this. And I started doing exactly what you said. And it was magical because a lot of the times everybody else just took care of the problem and it wasn't wasn't necessary for me to even opine. So that that has worked for me. I've worked on creating a, a secondary cal- uh, sort of calendar a- area where I, I spend time on email. And I found that it actually, it's very uh, it's very liberating. And I've done the same thing, of course, with notifications. So I took off all no- notifications on my phone about a year ago. And what I noticed was uh, there's really not anything all that urgent in right. life, of course. Right. So right. I have cut down my my phone time a lot and I've, I've increased my happiness. And, and I've learned, I think, relearned the fact that being always available and being the most responsive person isn't necessarily a strategy for success. Absolutely. And here's the beauty thing, the beautiful thing about this. There's nothing the tech companies can do about it. So for all we complain about the tech companies hijacking our brains, what is Zuckerberg going to do if you turn off notifications? Nothing. He can't turn them back on. And so that's what it means to hack back. That of course these devices are designed to hack your attention. That's how we want it to be. We want them to be engaging. But that doesn't mean we can't hack back. We can manipulate these technologies to make sure they serve us as opposed to us serving them. And there's all kinds of techniques. And these tools that we can use, you know, there are tools like Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator, like YouTube DF, these free Chrome extensions, ad blockers. I talk about all these things in the book that we can do. Most of them are absolutely free to hack back these external triggers that don't serve us. 
Okay, so so Nir, this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. So what's your advice to our listeners about, you know, starting this process of being indistractable? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so aligned. I think our messages are 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 very much aligned. It's about intent, right? There's nothing horrible about these technologies. They're not melting your brain. They're not addicting everyone. That's ridiculous. And in fact, when we believe that we are powerless, it becomes the case. And so if there's one message I want people to remember, it's that the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That all of this is about a problem with impulsiveness, right? That in the moment, we do something we didn't intend to do. You have the chocolate cake on the fork and it's about to go into your mouth. Well, that's too late. You've lit the cigarette and you're about to take a puff. You're gonna smoke. If you sleep next to your cell phone on your nightstand as far away as you are from your lover, well, you're gonna pick up your phone first thing in the morning. So as good as these products are, as delicious as food is to today, there is nothing that we can't do if we plan in advance for it. So one of the things that our species is gifted with that we can do better than any other creature on the face of the earth is that we have the ability to see the future with greater fidelity than any other animal. We can see what is going to happen. And so the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. If we take a few steps today, and none of this stuff is that hard to do if we know what to do, so there's nothing that we, we can't overcome as long as we take steps today to make sure we don't become distracted tomorrow. And assuming you're able to achieve this, I'm wondering, thinking of the other side of the coin, is there anything you're missing out on? For example, at a very minimum, you're missing out on all those dopamine hits that you get when you pick up your phone and there's 15 notifications. But is there anything else you think you give up? No, I mean, even even the dopamine stuff, um, you know, you get dopamine from a lot of things. You get dopamine from uh, playing the piano. You get dopamine from giving people a hug. Dopamine is not cocaine. <laughs> dopamine in the brain is is a reinforcer that we think uh, reinforces a behavior. It, it, it locks in a memory uh, of a behavior being rewarding. And you can get that same exact sensation from finishing something you plan to do. I mean, it feels amazing to sit down and say, for the next hour, I will do this thing. And that's all I did. That feeling of flow, that feeling of focus, that feeling of achievement is unbelievable. It's it's a great feeling that unfortunately few people experience these days because they allow their life to be controlled by something else, right? Your boss, your kids, social media, the news, something else is guiding your attention in your life. And so you never experience that amazing feeling of doing what it is you said you would do. All right, Nir, this has been super interesting. I think a lot of great ideas, uh, a lot of tips, a lot of ways to change the way you're doing things. If people want to find out more about you, where can they do that? Sure. So they can go to nearandfar.com is my website. Nir is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So N-I-R-and-far.com. And uh, if you want more information about Indistractable, you can go to indistractable.com. We made a free video course. There's also a complimentary 80-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the manuscript. So you can get that there as well. And all that is at indistractable.com. It's I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable. Fantastic. And everybody check out the book as well, uh, Indistractable. I will say what I like about it, uh, among among many other things, is the fact that at the end of every chapter, there are these pithy summaries for those of us who are distracted, yes. maybe multitasking we're reading. And so you can quickly uh, figure out what, what are the takeaways from each chapter and then go back to them if you want to check them out. So nice job on the book, Nir, and best of luck. Thank you so much. FOMO. 
And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is a time when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. And I have two special guests here in the studio, Nick Martell and Jack Kramer, who are the managing editors of News at Robinhood and are hosts of the Snacks Daily podcast. Now, you might remember these guys. They were on season one of FOMO Sapiens. They were, I think, the first show I ever taped back when they were the co-founders of a little company called Market Snacks. So, guys, uh, welcome to the show again. It's great to be here. It looks completely different. It really does. And by the way, this is the same show as Nir Eyal, who's also a repeat guest. So basically, this is what we call repeat week. It felt it felt like a faux moment to us. <laughs> Jack and I are back in New York City where we're appreciating the fall weather since we've been in California for the last year. Okay, so everybody, you'll remember these guys were MBA students. They had this startup that they were doing part-time when they were in banking and working in other companies. And then they maintained it while they were doing their MBAs. And all of a sudden... We have this update. You guys are part of Robinhood. So what the heck has happened since we last talked to you? Well, this has been full circle because we first connected with Patrick because we were side hustling. We were 10% entrepreneurs at the time. Boom. And we had grown a media company outside our day jobs based on digestible financial news, making business news accessible, fun, something you'd actually want to look for. Actually, based on a couple of beers, Nick and I hatched the idea after work one day at Old Town Bar on 18th Street in Manhattan. The next day, we wrote our first Market Snacks newsletter, and we haven't missed a day covering the news since. How many years is that? Seven. I can't do the math on that. Yeah, impressive. Okay. So basically, we kept growing, scaling the company into a media company. Where Patrick, it's been exciting to reconnect with you again on the podcasting because we jumped into podcasting. So we had a newsletter before we talk about podcasting. Yeah. We had a newsletter. We were doing frequent hits on TV, like kind of providing the millennial commentary on financial news. It was a lot of fun. And then last summer, we had the opportunity to do the conventional MBA internship thing or do our own thing with Market Snacks. And we went all in on Market Snacks starting May 1st, 2018. The summer started insanely. We started with a fundraise with Rough Draft Ventures, which just kicked things off. And then we got into actually launching a podcast. On May 23rd. I remember it fondly. Daily podcast, Market Snacks Daily. We kept growing from there. And that's when we realized that a lot of our theses about media were starting to play out. We started connecting with a company called Robinhood, which was democratizing access to financial markets while we were democratizing access to business news. It was a perfect mission alignment. Very nice connection there. Nice. And so did Robinhood sort of take from the rich venture capitalists to give to the poor students and, and do something with your company? <laughs> that's, a, that's a beautiful image, Patrick. I like that a lot. You should have mentioned the tights. <laughs> so Jack and I connected with Robinhood on a promotion in the newsletter. At the same time, we were running the daily podcast. And this connected really well with our audience because our audience is looking for ways to, after they get the information on what's happening in the markets, we're breaking down what's happening with Lululemon's earnings report and why maybe you should care about Under Armour stock, which has fallen because they missed out on athleisure. They want to do something actionable with that. Some of them want to invest. And that's where we saw a really interesting strategic connection. We also saw that Robinhood wants to democratize the financial system to all and increase participation in the financial system. But a lot of people need kind of a little bit of introduction to what the heck is finance. And that's what our podcast and newsletter does so well. We break down the barriers of like jargon and intimidation that you often get in the Wall Street Journal. And so we were kind of a great top of funnel for Robinhood to access people who might have had no idea about finance and had no intention of participating in finance beyond their checking account. But suddenly, if you listen to our pod, like you might be ready to maybe become an investor in stocks or something. So Robin Hood, after a successful marketing campaign with us, realized there was more to it. They wanted to build out a news arm. 
but realized we were a turnkey solution having built up a news media company as Market Snack. So there was an acquisition offer, um, a few months of negotiations, and we were fortunate to close uh, and launch, relaunch as Robinhood Snacks in March earlier this year. Wow, big news. And that's a pretty amazing story because you go from this part-time venture, you use it to get into business school, you do it while you're in business school, it becomes your summer internship, you then raise some money while you're still doing it part-time, then you end up selling it for strategic. Pretty amazing story, guys. I won't lie, going from 10% entrepreneur to side hustle entrepreneur to 110% committed entrepreneur last summer, Nick. It was insane. Opened up a wild amount of doors. That last leap that we took, oh my God. Insane. Well, <laughs> In May, we had a plan just to launch the podcast, and suddenly we had all sorts of different opportunities and doors were opening. And to shed some color on this, I mean, Jack and I were like at business school. I'm popping up on Antrac to go do a TV interview in New York like one or two days a week. Jack's doing like a remote interview from Michigan. We're running the company every night. We're leaving like the business school party to make sure we get home and are like getting the newsletter out. It was a wild, wild experience. And it really also fit with the thesis Jack and I had when it came to the exit about media and tech being partners together. So let me ask you a question, guys. Now that you're part of this big company, yeah. very successful company, um, you guys have a very successful podcast that everybody should check out. What are you missing out on? Anything? I mean, you you now, you know, you're part of a big company. You don't, you don't get to, you know, it's a little different, right? Last summer. By Nick, the way, they're listening. So last summer. <laughs> yeah, they are listening. Last summer, Nick and I, if we had a gut feeling that something would work out, we would go for it, talk about it over lunch, celebrate it over drinks, and we were doing whatever we wanted. We were like a dog without a leash, just running around, sniffing whatever we wanted to sniff, <laughs> playing with whatever we wanted to play with. And now we have to, you know, convince our colleagues that our gut feeling is worth it. And so often that means having data to prove it. So one thing we've had to learn to do at Robinhood and at any tech company and at more and more companies beyond tech is have a tiny little experiment that can verify your gut intuition with a little bit of data. Okay. So we're kind of like, can't sniff anything we want anymore. We have to convince the parent company that what we're doing is actually on point, and a lot of times that means providing data. Jack which has and I, been an adjustment. We were co-founders, we were co-CEOs. Jack nailed it with that analogy: the dog thing could not be or more on point. And for us, it's been about always being not only impulsive, but being able to make decisions together in a creative, substantive, strategic way. And when you're your own co-founders, and that's it, you can be more risk-taking, you can take advantage of these opportunities, and you're your own bosses. So the reality is we may not be our own bosses exactly anymore, but we've got a great team who we're working with who's giving us fantastic resources to keep focusing on our core mission, which has been to bring digestible business news to everyone. So guys, I know a lot of people remember you from the first show. We're going to want to check out where you are today. So where can they find all the things you're doing? Snacks.robinhood.com is our homepage. And within Spotify, within Apple, you can find our flagship podcast, which is called Snacks Daily, where Nick and I talk about the top three business stories of the day in 15 minutes. And it's perfect for your commute, perfect for your workout in the morning. Every day, just commit 15 minutes. You might even laugh with us. It's going to be a great podcast. You're going to have fun. You can check it out. We're actually going to go record this thing in a few minutes. We've got some good stories coming up. Snacks too. Daily. I'm very excited. Check out Snacks Daily. All right, guys. Congratulations, and thanks for stopping by. Thanks Thank for you. having us. FOMO. Big news. You can now pre-order my upcoming book, 
fear of missing out, practical decision-making in a world of overwhelming choice at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO sapiens. While you're there, make sure to download my free gift for you, the FOMO sapiens handbook, which is an exclusive guide to spotting and managing FOMO and even turning it into a force for good. And as always, if you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, you can reach me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, or on email at letsconnect at patrickmcginnis.com. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. If you like today's show, please be sure to subscribe, rate it, and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO dash quiz to find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO.